0: Thanks for
1: listening to The Wild Women Who Write, Kathy Nichols, Kim Connery, Elizabeth Jones, Kat Feiler, and Gabby Anderson.
0: So Wild Women Who Write, we're talking with uh, Dr. Susan K. Quinn. She is an environmental engineer and rocket scientist turned speculative fiction author. She now uses her PhD to invent cool stuff in books. Her works range from hope punk to science fiction, cyberpunk, steampunk, and romance. She grew up in California and got a bunch of engineering degrees, aerospace, mechanical, and environmental. She's designed aircraft engines and studied global warming. Susan is a full member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, the international organization of multi-published novelists and the Romance Writers Association. Her newest offerings are in the hope punk genre. And today we'll talk with her about that, about a project called Writers on the Moon and a little bit about marketing. Susan, welcome, we're so glad you agreed to join us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We would like to have you start out explaining what Hope Punk is and telling us why you started writing to that genre.
1: One of my favorite topics. Hope Punk is kind of what it sounds like. It's a more hopeful take, but it's not just any story that has a hopeful thread. Um, There is the punk part of that, which generally is challenge the status quo, work for justice, try to change the world for the better. I'm also writing a lot of hope punk climate fiction because I feel like we really do need those more hopeful narratives in the climate side because it's tremendously depressing and causing a lot of eco-grief and people need some kind of raft to float along and figure out where where can this possibly go that's any good. And so I'm trying to write some of those more hopeful narratives, but Some of the components of Hope Punk would be like a more cooperative society or group or um, group narratives rather than like the hero journey. Things where compassion is a key element of your problem solving rather than like duking it out with your fists. There's a lot of different components that go into it, but it's also being co-created right now by everyone who's writing it. So I don't feel like I can give the definitive definition of it, but for me, those are some key parts writing it for many years, but I, uh, in the depth of the summer of 2020, when we were grappling with just everything that was going on at that time, the pandemic was new, I really was building my own raft to try to find a way forward. And it was, I find that a lot of hope punk and solar punk writers are kind of in that bucket of, I write this because I need to write this (laughs) kind of approach. I think we were sort of trying to differentiate how hope punk is different than, um, utopian or dystopian
2: writing, but you're, you're kind of describing it already.
1: Yeah. I would say that utopias kind of have a bad rap of being like a perfect world that we've already attained. And, um, I don't think that's actually a fair description even for utopias, but it definitely isn't right for hope punk. Hope punk is, like explicitly the battle never ends. We have to always be working for a better world. And most of the stories will fall like, like we know where we wanna go, but we're only halfway there and we're still fighting to make that better world come true.
2: I loved when you said that people are still co-creating the definition of hope punk, because I taught English for a number of years in high school. And I thought I knew genre. Well, forget that. I mean, we are constantly co-creating because what you're saying, we need this. You know, Mm -hmm. we are starting to, we respond as writers, we respond to social needs and not just trends so much as almost a subconscious kind of desire for Mm -hmm. that people need something to put a name to it and to help come up with these ideas. So I just thought that was great.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I didn't invent that, but, but like a lot of what goes on in the co-creation is that we kind of ping off of each other, you know, the stuff you read, the stuff you write. And I do like that. That's actually an essential piece of both hope punk and Solar Punk is that sort of group effort. Um, so it's very resonant that, you know, you honor that piece of the co-creating. Kim, did you want
0: to talk a little bit about uh, the themes? Yeah, I really
3: love the theme of found family and when you have power. I just, that was really beautiful. And that's a theme that runs through a lot of our books to the the idea of chosen family. And, you know, Stealing Aries has that too. They, they're on a Mars colony, 500 years in the future, so far away from anything. And all they have is each other and, you know, at, at that point, the caldera under Yellowstone National Park has gone up. Ash has circled the earth so they can't get supplies to the colonists. So they literally are each other's, you know, found family. You know, they they have to rely on each other, and it puts them in this position to have to use the resources they have and rely on each other. And so found family is, is a big theme. And in um, Gabby's south of Happily. You know, Katie Kiss literally finds a family member. And, but it's also found family in the sense that of relying on her friends. And Shadowrunner, Cat's book, you know, Ada, you know, Nadine becomes a surrogate mom after um, the dad just cannot cope with the loss of the mom, you know. And, and there's the surrogate sister with Cat's book. And so this, this idea, you know, of you know, the found family, I think, is, is very beautiful. And it can be a lot broader than, than we think. And there was this wonderful quote, and I just want to read it real quick. I'll promise not to take up too much time with reading, but um, I just thought it was really lovely from When You Had Power. A family match was more like a weather prediction. Probably sunny, but still a 10% chance of thunderstorms. Because even when you didn't annoy the crap out of each other, even when you thought you were accepted into a family, when an unstable low-pressure front came through, things didn't always work out as planned. And I thought, isn't that so true, you know, even today among our, our, our groups and our family groups and our extended family and friends that are found family even now? So I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I love
1: everything that you said there. Um, fam family is a, is a very modern concept. I feel like even though it's been around for a while and especially in like queer communities, that has always been your family because like often your biological family rejects you and you were just had to find a replacement for that, but I think we're, we've extended that out to having, especially if you look at younger generations, like their friend groups are, are their far found family, even if it's not formalized, per se. And in the series, I, I project that out and say, okay, this is a societal need that we have. And so I feel like the the law is going to follow that at some point, especially in places like, you know, for example, America, where you can't get health insurance for your mom, but you can get it for your kid. Like what, it, it hardly even makes sense. What about like for your friends? Like, so they're You know, if my friend is in the hospital, I can't really go visit them because they're not family. And so like we have these these mismatches between what we formalize as family and what we really have as family. And I feel like that's got to like level up at some point and line up. So I experimented with that in the in the series. And, you know, in the first book, there is, you know, this family that you can basically have legal documents that you, you know, it's like a marriage certificate, but it's really just like a formal commitment to care. And I do something different with found family in each of the four books. So the first book is the first sort of introduction to that. The second one is more about like, let's look at extended family and how, you know, living together as an extended family, which is unusual now could be like another option. And that I also address that in the third book, with the addition of like maybe your extended family isn't who you want to have actually come live with you and um maybe there's other the problems that go with that and then in the fourth book it was a very different kind of relationship that was um i found very fascinating because these are all things that people do in real life right but it's a relationship where it's not a sexual relationship but it's an extremely deep friendship like beyond what even like your normal best friend or even a sister relationship would be like something where it's just, this is a profound relationship you have with another person that transcends what our normal definitions are of that kind of relationship. And fascinatingly, when I went, I took a retreat um, to uh, off the Chesapeake Bay to try to restart this book because there were problems in my life that happened that like book totally stalled out and I just like ran away for a month and said I have to restart this book. And there was a friend of a friend and she was like, hey, you're like in my neighborhood. Come see me. And I said great. And we got talking about this relationship in this book. And she was like, oh that's that's me. I have that relationship with a friend. And I'm like may I interview you (laughs) because I'd really like to understand this more. And that was just one of those funny serendipity things. But I think a lot of this is just happening out there. We don't formalize it. We don't have even words for it sometimes, but people are finding ways to connect because connecting is just like breathing. We have to have it to survive. And there's so much of our modern world that, that pulls us apart. And, and, just like political stuff but just like people just not having the kinds of built-in societal connections that we've had historically and it's not good for us so we're figuring out how to rebuild those safety nets those connections those things that make life worth living and i want more of that i want to so my my books speak to that because i think we need to be told that that's okay to do
0: and I think you um, you're going to hear from everyone here that that is exactly how we all came together, and it's our mission. Um, we're a bunch of authors who are you know trying to you know get our own books looked at too, but we are always promoting each other. We always write reviews for each other. We always try to appear together or share um, you know events and stuff like that. And um, and the mission of Wild Women is to promote women in fiction and particularly strong female characters. <laughs> It's wonderful. I love it. It's interesting. Kim, you asked, you told us what the favorite quote was, and I had several favorite quotes. And so Susan, we would like to know what your favorite quote was in your book.
1: One of my favorite quotes is anything cozy is Jex. He has a channel, you know, the easy pleaser over a million watchers. Now he's got a real gift for it. I just code AI for the corporate overlords and try not to burn the pancakes. So this is one of my characters who's talking about his partner and how they do this cozy thing, which is also another aspect of hope punk where being gentle and cozy and doing those things that are not going out and saving the day and slaying the dragon. Like we can just kind of stay home and have our cozy channel and make pancakes and it's like, that's, it's sort of like the quote from, um, everything everywhere all at once where he was like i would have been happy in another timeline to just stay home and do taxes and laundry with you that's it there it is (laughs) that's why that's my favorite quote i think
2: we're commenting on how people today are kind of moving back into the idea of extended family or uh keeping well maybe not necessarily keeping touch with the family you have but forming connections family-like connections and i thought it's so interesting because it seems like it's almost cyclical in a way because when i came from my dad had like nine brothers and or eight brothers and sisters nine counting him and they all lived in a very tight area in a mountain in tennessee then they started branching off and we had a florida group of them and a, another deep place in tennessee and then it kind of dissolved as far as we had nothing really in common other than name once we they were scattered but now i feel like people were like coming back into that my daughter has a um, friends that are having a baby together and they are buying a house with her parents they can't really afford to buy a house by themselves and she wants the support so mm-hmm. some that in the past we would have said oh my god i do not want to do that is now taking on uh on more importance than it even had in before i think that's kind of why we have this need the need was there and somehow or another it got perverted kim i had read
3: this book by sebastian young i don't know if you've heard of him he was a um reporter and he had been you know out in the field and in different i want to say he was embedded reporter in you know with different wars and and things like that And, and he had written a book called tribe and he examined the way people um felt during wars and then after wars. And he talked about how the reported levels, as miserable as they thought they were when bombs were dropping on their cities, when they interviewed these same people after the danger was passed and their lives had been somewhat repaired, they reported much higher feelings of depression, you know, in their lives later. And they attributed that to the sense that the the feeling of tribe had disappeared, the feeling of being a village, that cooperative had disappeared from their lives, because when the war was going on, they were so close, they had become a tribe again, that, you know, that ancient programming, like it used to be when we were all in a village and counted on each other, and we were so intertwined. You know, it was that sense of, oh gosh, this is how we're supposed to live, this is how we're supposed to be, but then when they were no longer in danger, you would think their levels of of joy and happiness would skyrocket, but it actually plummeted when they were no longer in danger because the sense of of tribe had departed with with the danger, and they were depressed. So that sort of reminded me of that.
1: Rebecca Solnit just had a great article out, I think it was in The Guardian, about that. I love her. She inspires me a lot. Um, but she spoke to that. She said how, um, when she was studying for a book, people who are in emergency situations, and she said, it didn't surprise me that they come together. We naturally help each other. We naturally form instant networks to assist people. Um, She said, the thing that was surprising was how joyful that made them in the midst of this terrible tragedy that brought them together. They craved that connection so much and she her point with that was we have this climate emergency that is the biggest emergency that we've ever had that has faced all of us as a humanity you know as a species and what we really need to do is to form those emergency connections to come together and work to solve the problem and the benefit of that is Not just that you get rid of air pollution and save lives, or maybe like save some of the species that are going to extinct. The benefit is the joy of that connection. And so at the same time that it's the answer for the planet, it is actually the answer for us and we're figuring that out a little bit, but not enough. And part of it is because all of our stories tell us different. It tells, our stories say we have to go be the hero. We have to not depend on anyone. We have to go it alone. And that is not the story that we need right now. I mean, those stories are fine. Like I'm not saying get rid of them, but we need more stories to tell us that it's okay to connect and rely on our friends and let our friends help us because, not just because it's okay to need help, because that actually builds bonds that make all of us stronger.
4: Yeah. So. You know, when you were saying that about the emergency connections, I was thinking because, you know, the whole concept of Hope Punk is really new to me, which probably is the case for most people. But do you feel like that the connections made among writers is, of Hope Punk is in response to the emergency of the climate? Because, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, one of the ways that story functions in our lives is to provide a map for the world that we find ourselves in. And so far, we've mostly only had, you know, kind of like this collective mythos from the 20th century and, you know, where we're worried about technology taking over mankind and, and the government using technology. And it seems like it's pivoted now on what is the government and technology doing to the environment and the climate? And it seems like Hope Punk is sort of endeavoring to create a whole new mythos for it, it, that will incorporate all these new maps for people to like Google Maps, like more pictures, like filling it in with something that's more accurate. So, do you feel like I have kind of, is that how you see it? Where, where in the literary world, th- these are the emergency connections being made among writers? Yeah, I think
1: it's hard for us to find each other, to be honest, uh, within the subgenre. But that, but that is happening. And your your words are exactly right. The new mythos is a a term that my friend PJ Manny came up with. I mean, like now seven years ago when I joined her group and she's like, we need a new mythos. We need we have this old mythos that told us how to survive before. And now we have this new world and we need a new mythos to survive in it. And I think that just gets more accurate every day. And, um, and I'm trying, I, I think, Hope Punk and Solarpunk and a lot of these stories that wouldn't even call themselves that, but have a strain of cooperative problem solving or compassionate responses rather than, you know, the trauma response of like, you punch me, I'm going to punch you back kind of thing. You know, we're, we are developing that across the way. and. You know even things like the last of us which is this you know people have been talking about how there's this hope punk thread through the last of us i'm like it's a gory fungus zombie show what the heck are you talking about so you know of course now i had to go find out more about it and um and i'll be darned <laughs> if they're not right and what i see happening is some more traditional type stories, more old mythos type stories, as they reach for something new, a fresh twist, something new to do, Uh, they'll rummage around in the hook Punk bin and pull out something that is, oh, look, here's a found family story thread, let's use that, and then weave that into their more traditional storytelling. So it's like kind of creeping in everywhere which is super exciting to me to see because that's what we need. That's what we collectively need. And I'm, I'm very passionate about these stories, not just because I like to write them, but because I do feel like it's part of this larger need that society needs right now. And that's very motivating to me
0: personally and as a writer. I'd like to use that to segue into something I know you're involved in, and I believe you're the founder of Writers on the Moon and how, you are personally involved in using some of the technology to make sure that our stories survive and are archived, probably not forever, ever, ever, but you know, forever. Could be.
1: <laughs> I'm, yeah, so where it is on the moon is a very fun, um, cool thing that I, so my husband works at Astrobotic, he's a, a lunar rover designer. And shortly, which he got that job, like right when the pandemic was starting, which was crazy. It was like pandemic, worldwide pandemic, and also you have a new job, what? <laughs> and you have to move, what? It was a crazy time. So partway into that, I found out that their first mission, Peregrine Mission 1, was actually selling payloads. Like you could buy a payload through like DHL was a partner and they have like these little tiny pods that you could buy a payload. And so I like quickly did the math and I'm like, I can put an SD card on there and I could send my books to the moon. What that was like, what? (laughs) And so obviously I'm going to do that, (laughs) but then like three seconds later, I'm like, there's way too much room on this SD card for just my, I could put my entire library a collection of books on there, way too much room. I need to like get more people in on this deal. And so I started this writers on the moon project and I reached out to my, my fellow indie authors, friends, people that I didn't know, but heard about the project and were excited about it. I did a whole bunch of effort to collect up, not only your books, like everybody got a slot on the SD card to put a certain amount of data. So it could be your books, it could be your covers could be your picture, could be your family photos. I don't know, a picture of your dog, (laughs) whatever you wanted to send to the moon and have it like be there for like essentially all eternity because where else is it gonna go? It's just, they just land it and it stays there. So we put the whole project together and eventually along the way, we made a website and which I'm still updating sadly, because I'm really slow. And one of the things that will be on the website are the stories behind the stories. So I had the writers, write. I said, imagine there's a future anthropologist who goes to the moon, and they want to excavate this historic site, which is America returning to the moon and and landing the first lander, and there's payloads on there. And they would like to know, who are these people who sent these books on an SD card? Who are they? What's their story? I can imagine if you go back and, you know, talk to any historian, they want to know, like, actual people's lives and what their story was you know not just them as a writer who wrote a book so we put all that together that's all going to be on the website so again a cooperative endeavor we're all like in this together it was great fun my dad was uh he actually worked on the apollo missions he designed one of the engines and so he and we took a few stowaways on and my dad got to be one of the stowaways which meant he sent his collection of astronaut pins and an original picture of man lands on the moon and it was just it was a really a uh, very emotional thing for me <laughs> to be able to connect with my dad who is now past he <clears throat> he died not long after we put the whole program together so it was like one last really cool thing that i got to share with my dad on top of everything else that's awesome about it. And Peregrine 1 is scheduled to launch on May 4th. So, we're getting close after much delay, and hopefully we won't blow up on the launch pad. That would be nice, and hopefully even if we I said even if we lawn dart into the regolith on the moon, I still count that as a win because we will be on the moon. <laughs> it's sort of like Sagan's golden record, but on on the moon. Yes, but on the moon. Right. Exactly.
0: That's really cool. Um, I think Kim, you wanted to ask some questions about um, marketing because Susan, believe me, we have looked at the number of reviews you have on your books <laughs> and we are very jealous and hope to be there someday.
3: Looking at, at your website, I just was thrilled to see that you you offer books, you know, to help people out with their marketing and that you had that, you know, directly on your website. because. All the wild women have talked about that, and, and all the authors we know. Before your book is published, you think, you naively think, <laughs> you know, oh, once the book is done, you'll, you're done. It, it's going to be great. You're going to be happy, you know. But you quickly realize, oh, no. For me, even opening the box of books, because it had dawned on me before then, there's so much to do as far as marketing and and getting reviews and making sure I keep my book out there. You know, it can be so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that if you're not careful, it can even rob you of the joy of getting this book out there that you've worked, you know, maybe over a decade, two decades to put into the world. So I thought it was fantastic when I saw on your website that you have, you know, all these tools for authors, so I would love for you to speak to us about that.
1: Well, gosh, I, you know, first of all, I want y'all, because I heard where you talked about your book slightly before we started recording, I think, and uh, what you need to remember, first of all, is that I've been in this business for a while. So my first indie book was in 2011, so we're talking, you know, a dozen years now, and so that's a long time to acquire reviews and i've been through 17 spin cycles on how all the marketing changes because it literally changes every six months i don't have all the magic secrets i don't have you know the the thing that i tell people and, and i do i mentor a lot of people and help them get going on their careers and i do that because i like to be part of the community and that's one of the things i love about the indie community is that again, we're a community. We actually help each other. But yeah, it can be super overwhelming. And if you feel overwhelmed, that's like 100% natural. And you, ha- there is a sort of a requirement, I think. There's two separate things. There's the writing of the book, and then there's launching a business where you sell your books. And those are two just very different activities. And some people are gonna be good at both of those and some of the people are just really gonna be like not so good at the other one and not because there's something wrong with them, but just because it it takes like a certain amount of energy and time and mindset. You got little kids at home? Okay, I'm amazed you can even write a book. What are you talking about? You're gonna like launch a business too? If you've got, you know, teenagers at home, ditto. <laughs> like if you've got, Parent that you're caring for, like, there are just especially for women writers, there are a lot of social obligations that the world puts on us. And oh, by the way, you're also supposed to run a business, sure, you know. So, I'm not making like I want you to feel like whatever you feel like you can handle and take on is completely valid. And if you know, don't feel like you have to run and do a million things, and so. One of the things that I've done, I have a a group called Indies Together, it's a Facebook group. And I have like a tiny little marketing guide that's free um, because I kind of pulled down a lot of books and resources that I had put up earlier on in my career to help people for a number of reasons, but largely because they would get out of date. I mean, everything's just changed so quickly. So I do have this review and, and anyone that wants to go to the Facebook group and download, they're more than welcome. Uh, it's very slapdash. It's very compacted to like five, 10 pages or something of like, here's some just essentials, like how to, how to format your books in a way that sells, not the formatting, formatting, but like how to build a series, how to, I'm a big fan of setting books free and using that as a marking tool. Buying ads, you know, it's, it's very basic. But oftentimes I find that people who are just starting out, they need just the basic stuff first to get grounded. And then that's one stepping stone is basic information and a little bit of money so you can buy some covers and do some marketing. But then the big key that I find is you've got to be someone who is eager to try new things and fail and try again and fail and keep that cycle until you figure out, Oh, this worked. Okay, now we're going to do that thing. <laughs> and then like really get rid of all your preconceived notions about what works, because I guarantee you that you don't know what works. You won't know what I don't know what works until I run the experiment. Now, this is my engineer nerdy side coming out. Okay, got to run the experiment and get the data so you know what actually works. Well, and then, like, don't ignore your data. Like, when you have the data, like, actually use that data. That's where I fall down sometimes. I'll, like, collect all the data, and then I'll just, like, ignore that and continue on doing the thing that I wanted to do in the first place. So, okay, Sue, good job. Um, So don't do as I do. (laughs) Say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Pay attention to your data. And the people who are really successful that I see in this have that key part where they're a natural tinkerer, they're a natural experimenter. They want to try out things. They're willing to let go of their biases of how it should be. They will go out and find what actually works. And 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 it's completely okay to not do that. If all of that is overwhelming and too much and doesn't work with your life, I am such a huge advocate of do what works with your life, right? Maybe you're not going to sell a million books because that actually is just not going to bring you joy in your life as much as these other things like having a life and spending time with your kids or just writing more books. Like the writing, the books part, I, I spend honest to gosh, like 90% of my time is writing books and sometimes it's a hundred percent for a long time. Cause I just, whatever business, you just need to go float for a while. Cause I need to go do these writing things and that's really, really okay. And I, I want to validate anyone who's out there and is, like, tired of chasing after book sales, it's okay not to do that for a while or even at all. There's a completely valid path because the reason why we're in this is not to become rich off of our books. Sure would be nice. That would be great. <laughs> Nobody's dissing that. We're in this because we want to create and we want to tell stories and we want to connect. And there's a little bit of intertwining there because if you have more sales and you're connecting with more readers, right? So like, it's not just the money, but honor yourself first. And especially in this this time of where, you know, art is kind of under attack, <laughs> like honor the artist inside you and
2: be okay with that being the primary reason you're doing this. That was great, Susan. And I can't believe our time has gone so quickly. That's that's your fault. You were too too much fun to talk to. I- I just talk too much is what that is. No. And I love the idea of honoring yourself as the artist and recognizing that and, and not trying to do everything. So we've really enjoyed having you. Um, I hope I can't wait to hear about more about your moon launch, I'll say. And would you tell us our audience where they can find you and your books? I know you're on Facebook. Do you have another uh, website you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, I'm on Facebook if you want to hear me rant about, you know, like, various topics. (laughs) And if you don't, that's fine, too. My website, SusanKQuinn.com, pretty basic, uh, has all my stuff, all my books. And um, if you want to follow Writers on the Moon, however, they have their own website, WritersOnTheMoon.com. And you actually, there is a newsletter there that you can sign up for, um, which I've been terrible about updating people but I will soon update because we're getting close to launch and that will be pretty exciting. So if you want to be on the loop and just like know when that happens, go sign up for the newsletter.
2: Thank you so much and we really enjoyed it. Good Thank luck you so with the moon, reaching for the moon. <laughs> Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.